You are listening to Sermon Audio from Red Tree Church. For more information about our church or to find more Sermon Audio, visit redtreechurch.com. Uh, before we get going, I want to reiterate what Matt said um, and just take a moment uh, just really quick to, to remember that today, this is Memorial Weekend where we um, honor those uh, in our history, in our culture, in our families who um, have paid a really big price to, to protect and serve our country. I have a lot of, um, you know, I, I'm not a veteran, and that is largely because I stand on the shoulders of men and women who sacrificed a lot to, to serve our country. And so um, if you have friends or family uh, who are veterans or who have um, lost friends or family because of conflict, man, think about them this weekend, say hi to them, um, tell them you love them, you're thinking about them. Uh, but we're going to jump into Malachi today. So uh, if you have your Bibles, you can open up to Malachi chapter 1. It's going to be good. If you need a Bible today, we have house Bibles on the end of each row. We care a lot about access to God's Word here at Red Tree Church. If you don't own a Bible, um, please use one of those today. Please take one home. Make that yours. If you would like a nicer Bible than our beat up pew Bibles, talk to one of our elders and we will get you one. Seriously, we, we believe access to God's word is, is just really important. So we're in Malachi 1 today. If you don't know where Malachi is, that's fine. Uh, welcome to 98% of the human population. <laughs> it's uh, the last book of the Old Testament. So you can use your table of contents. Craig empowered us uh, to be people who use our table of contents last week. Um, or you can just open your Bible generally to the middle and you work your way over until the very end of the Old Testament. You'll find Malachi. It's the last book there. Um, guys, I am stoked for our time this summer in the prophets. Uh, we're going to be in Malachi and then Habakkuk and then Jonah over the course of the summer. And I know, listen, I know the summer is a time when it's hard to be consistent in attendance, i.e. this weekend. Uh, we have trips, we have vacations, we have family in and out of town, graduations, all of the above. I get it. That's that's, that's fine. Uh, but man, I would just encourage you guys, I would encourage you guys, when, while we're spending this time in this unique section of the scripture, I would encourage you to, as much as you can, stay engaged in this. I think God has something unique and beneficial and probably just a little painful to share with us out of the prophets this summer. So I'm going to go ahead and read our text for today. Uh, we're starting out Malachi. So Malachi 1, chapter 1, starting in verse 1, we read this. An oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins... The Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down. And they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. And this is the word of the Lord. I'm going to pray for us and we'll jump into this. Holy Spirit, we humbly ask that you would be with us today. Um, we, we want to hear from you. We want to receive your ministry today. We want you to illuminate your revelation to us. We want you to speak 
truth over us. We want you to convict us of our sin, to remind us of the teachings of our lover of our soul, Jesus. We want you to to teach us new things that we might find life and joy and freedom in you and your gospel. God, we love you. We trust you. So we pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. What a text, right? Getting straight to it. You know, we don't talk about the prophets super often in the church nowadays. We pretty much hit like the famous ones in Isaiah around Christmas, and that's just about it, right? And the reason is pretty obvious as soon as you jump into it. The prophets are weird. It's kind of hard to understand. You read this and you're like, okay, God says he loves Israel, but he is mean to some country called Edom. This just kind of sounds strange and angry. And if we're honest, a lot of times, if we, if we actually do get to the books of the prophets, maybe in our personal devotional time, have you ever read through Isaiah? Right? It's a lot of, I don't like these people. <laughs> and it's hard to understand. And so we end up avoiding it a lot. But guys, the prophets... Prophets make up a big chunk of your Bible. God actually really cares about the ministry of the prophet and the prophetic word. He, he gave it to us for a reason. So I think it's, it's worth our time to investigate, to dig into the ministry of the prophets. And I think our time in the minor prophets, we're going to look at, again, Malachi, Habakkuk, and Jonah. I think it'll give us a better lens to engage this genre in scripture. And the reason is this. One of the main reasons a book like Isaiah is so hard to understand is it's so stinking long. It's hard to see the overarching themes and truths of it. And so you end up over zooming in and looking at too many minute details. But when we look at the minor prophets that are three or four chapters long, we're able to see the bigger picture of what God is saying through each of these prophets' ministries. So here's what we're going to do today. We're going to talk a little bit about the context historically of Malachi. We're going to talk about some of the actual textual context, the structure of our passage for today. Ultimately, that's going to lead us uh, to some writings from the book of Hebrews, and we'll end our time out with Paul in the letter to the Romans, and we'll take communion and pray together. Sound good? So here's what's going on. We have to put ourselves, remember, when you jump into the prophets, not only are you jumping into a genre of literature that you don't read super often, but you're jumping into a different age of the church, right? We just spent a year and a half in the book of Mark, hearing the words of Jesus, hearing about his ministry, the gospel and the kingdom of God, as Jesus himself described them. But when you take a few pages back and get into Malachi, we're in the Old Testament under the Old Covenant. And things are a little different. We have to do a little more work of contextualizing and understanding what God is saying theologically in the text before we begin looking to how that actually applies to the church today and to us as individuals. So when you think about the Old Testament, any time you're in the OT, I need you to think about everything in terms of covenant. And specifically, most of the Old Testament is going to be talking about the Sinai covenant, right? So if you go back and you read Exodus, the defining story of the Jewish people is that God saved his people from slavery. Craig talked about this last week. He, he did this mammoth task where he put the whole Old Testament in context, right? So anytime we jump into OT, especially in the prophets, 
We're talking about things in terms of Sinai, of Moses on the mount, God speaking. See, the covenants are God defining his relationship with his people. Genesis 3, sin entered the world, relationship with God is broken. And throughout the Old Testament, we see God establishing these covenants where he reinitiates relationship with his people and then defines what that relationship will look like. None of those covenants were as defined to the T as Sinai. When God saved his people from slavery in Egypt and brought them to the mountain and appeared in power and revealed his law and his covenant to the prophet Moses, he, de- he defined to the letter how he would relate to his people and how they would relate to him. Go back and read Leviticus and Deuteronomy. I know you're like, that seems like the worst idea. Seriously, go back and read Leviticus and Deuteronomy. You will see a loving, gracious God taking brainwashed, abused, multiple generation slaves and helping them redefine who they are. It is a beautiful text where God is taking oppressed people and empowering them and giving them new identity in freedom and in him. I I really hope that when we actually pick out a book of the Bible that you guys kind of incorporate it into some of your personal study. Before you jump into Malachi, do yourself a favor and go read Deuteronomy 28. Deuteronomy 28, my GC is like, we already read that. (laughs) Deuteronomy 28 is where God defines the consequences of his covenant at Sinai. He says, if you enter into this covenant with me and you honor it, here are all the blessings you'll receive. If you enter into this covenant with me and you desecrate it, here are all the curses you will receive. Deuteronomy 28 is a hard chapter to read. Because what we see is that God's people joyfully enter into this covenant with God and then from day one desecrate it over and over and over and over and over and over. And the entire Old Testament from basically Deuteronomy 28 through Malachi is God's people desecrating the covenant they've made with God and God in his grace and love and mercy and patience calling them back to faithfulness. You see, one of the coolest themes about the book of the 12, the minor prophets, is that it is bookended by this imagery of marriage. Hosea, the first minor prophet, opens with the story of a prophet who's called by God to go and marry a prostitute who's unfaithful to him and to remain faithful to her in spite of adultery over and over and over. And God says, that is how Israel is with me. I am faithful to the end. And they continually desecrate our covenant. And then you wrap around to Malachi where we're at. And one of the main themes of Malachi that we're going to see is God's faithful, continued love. His faithful endurance within the covenant in the face of Israel's infidelity. And Malachi is going to reinstitute this imagery of marriage and divorce and covenant faithfulness for his relationship to his people. So the whole Old Testament is this story of broken covenant and God as the jilted lover pursuing his love, Israel. And the ministry of the prophets plays this incredibly important and unique role within that, where the prophets essentially come to God's people and say, 
You are breaking the covenant. Do you remember Deuteronomy 28? If you keep doing this, God will curse you. You agreed to this covenant. If you keep doing this, there will be consequences. God loves you and wants to be in relationship with you, but there is a covenant. If you break it, there will be consequences. This is the ministry of the prophets over and over and over. And by the time we get to Malachi, it has happened. The shoe has dropped. God has allowed Israel to be destroyed. The northern and southern kingdoms have both been completely and utterly wiped off the face of the planet. Jerusalem laid to waste. The temple completely destroyed, down to nothing. The very foundation stones were pulled out of the ground and ground into rubble. Israel is gone. And then 70 years later, you can read about this through the book of Jeremiah and the book of Lamentations. 70 years later, under the reign of the Persian Empire, Israel has allowed some of their people to return as a remnant to their homeland. And if you read in Ezra and Nehemiah, you see this remnant, these, this, the children and grandchildren coming back and trying to rebuild some semblance of Israel. And by the time we get to Malachi... Jerusalem as a city is functioning again. Malachi happens in the middle of Nehemiah 13. You can go read that on your own. You should. There's a point where Nehemiah in his ministry leaves and is gone for like a decade and then comes back. Malachi prophesies in that gap between when Nehemiah leaves and when he comes back. So Israel sort of exists again. Jerusalem exists. There's a temple. There's worship But God's people are very broken and very discouraged and very disillusioned. Think about the reality of their circumstances and how that might affect their theology, right? This God who rescued them from oppression and slavery, who who raised them up and gave them dignity and blessing, has now, for whatever reason, allowed them to be completely destroyed and enslaved once again. And Israel is not free. Israel is subject to this evil pagan empire. And they live in their city again only at the pleasure of their evil pagan emperor. And so as God's people are kind of trying to get back into temple worship and re-engaging the scripture, and they actually begin to study the covenants. There's this beautiful scene in Ezra and Nehemiah where, where a Deuteronomy is read to the people, and they just begin to weep as they realize their history and what they've lost. Something in their theology begins to break, where they say, this can't be right. Either, either God doesn't actually love us, or he's just not powerful enough. And think about that. Look at their circumstances. Here they are, enslaved again. Their history gone. Their, the temple they've rebuilt is, is nothing compared to the temple of Solomon. There's this scene when they dedicate the new temple, and, and it says the young people begin to worship and praise God, and the older people begin to weep because they remember the splendor of Solomon's temple. And it says the weeping and the rejoicing mixes together, and you can't even tell the difference, because they realize how far they've fallen, right? And so here are God's people in Israel, 
essentially saying, listen, something is broken here. Either God doesn't really love us, or or maybe he's just too weak. Maybe the pagan gods are stronger than him. Maybe he loves us as much as he says he does, and the forces of this world have just conquered him, and this is the best we can hope for. Beloved, I feel like there are some of us in this room this morning that are like right there with Jerusalem, right? Where something about the reality of your circumstances has broken something about your understanding of God. How many of us, if we're honest, sit back and look at our own suffering and our own circumstances and say, how possibly could a loving God allow this in my life? How possibly could a strong God, a sovereign God, allow this evil and this injustice in my life? He must not be who he says he is. And maybe we would never say that out loud, but how many of us have had that spin through our head? How many of us live as though that is true in our life? So right off the bat, guys, you know, we're talking about pre-cross pre-Pentecost, Old Testament, Old Covenant believers. But man, I feel like they've got a lot in common with us, yeah? So God gives this revelation to faithless, hurting, beaten down Jerusalem. And the reality is, guys, he's going to be brutal with them. Like if you go through and read the rest of this book, we're going to go through it. God pulls no punches with Jerusalem. He says, you are in sin. You are doing these things that are evil and detestable. Go back and look at the covenant. I take this stuff seriously. God's going to lay into them, which, by the way, I feel like is a, is a spot for some of us just to camp here today. And, and I want you to hear this. Like, we're not going to camp here super long. But, man, if we're honest, God cares a lot more about holiness and sin than most of us do. You know what I mean? So God's about to lay into Malachi, or lay into Jerusalem via Malachi. But he starts with this passage. I think this is amazing. I love this. I love that, that in the face of what they're about to walk through, this is where God starts. In verse 2, I have loved you, says the Lord. Some of your translations say, I have always loved you. God starts this thing off by saying, listen, before we get into anything else, you need to know something. I've always loved you. My love for you is real and is unending and is unchanging. That is the context within which we're going to talk about your failures, is my love for you. Right? What a place to start. See, God knows that this is about to be heavy and that the people aren't going to want to hear this. We never like the words of prophets, this mercy ministry of God who comes and warns us of the impending destruction that our sin will bring about. No one likes to hear that. If you want evidence of that, go read church history and read what happened to the prophets. They pretty much all died terrible, awful deaths because no one likes to hear the words of the prophets. God knows this is about to be brutal, and so he says, listen. 
Before we talk about anything else, you need to know I love you. I've always loved you. And then we get into here the structure of Malachi. See, Malachi is set up in this, in this kind of call and response. It's, I'm not going to get too far into it. I can send you some resources if you're interested in this. But, but it's kind of set up like an ancient Persian courtroom drama where God brings up these accusations or these defenses and then anticipates Israel's response to him and then speaks into his kind of disproving or engaging their anticipated response. So he starts off with this assertion. I have always loved you, but you say, how have you loved us? A fair question. If you're standing in decimated, conquered Jerusalem, and the prophet comes to you and says, hey man, God loves you a ton. You look around you and go, really? Where? I'd love to see some of that. And then God gives the strangest response, right? I've always loved you. Look at Edom. They're super dead. Wait, what? And then he, he references his idea of, well, well, I loved Jacob and I hated Esau and, and the people of Esau, the Edomites, they're completely and totally destroyed forever. You see that? And that's where some of us start to disengage, right? Like we were with it for the first verse, like, wow, look at this. God's like saying he loves his people and like there's this disconnect. But now you're just talking about like killing their neighbors. Like, I don't understand it. We've got to put ourselves in this world for a minute. So Edom was the neighbor's country-wise, nation-wise, to ancient Israel. And if you go back to Genesis, we see that their, their uh, ancestry comes back to the same family. So pre-Exodus, pre-nation of Israel, the covenant of God existed with a single family and a single person. God appeared to Abraham and said, I promise you I will fix what is broken in this world. And then Abraham had a, a son named Isaac, and God appeared to Isaac and said, I promise you I will fix what is broken. And Isaac had two kids, Jacob and Esau. And Esau was the older brother who, by cultural standards, would have received the inheritance of this covenant and this blessing. But God instead chooses to pass on the covenant and pass on the blessing through Jacob, the younger brother, who is also a complete and total jerk. <laughs> Incredibly dishonest and sinful young man. But God chooses to continue the covenant through Jacob. And Jacob has 12 sons who become 12 tribes who make their way and become Israel. And so God steps back here and says, listen, listen, listen. I chose you. I didn't choose Esau. I chose Israel. I didn't choose Edom. Now that's weird for us, but the thing you need to understand here is that this, this Hebrew word, which I can't pronounce, that, that gets used for love here, is inherently connected to this idea of choice and covenant. So yes, there's affection when he says, I, I love you. There's affection in that, the way we think of love, the way we think of agape and phileo and this affection and this care. But there's also this idea of faithfulness and commitment where God says, no, 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 no. I, I chose you. I elected you. I picked Israel, not Esau. I picked Jacob, not his brother. I picked Israel, not 
eat them. And then he gets into this weird image. Listen, you both sinned. You both, Israel and Edom, both bore my wrath. I allowed both of your nations and your peoples to be destroyed for your sinful lives. But I'm rebuilding you. I'm not rebuilding them. I'm done with them. I'm not rebuilding Edom. They can try. I won't let it happen. But Israel, I'm rebuilding. And so God takes their broken theology. God, surely God must just not love us. Or if he does, he's not powerful enough. And he answers both ideas in his opening words. He says, listen, I have always loved you. I chose you and I am faithful to that choice. Your actions bore destruction for you. And I have justified in my destruction of you. But because I love you, because you're mine, because I chose you, I'm rebuilding you. The other nations that have experienced my wrath, they're gone. But you I'm rebuilding. Because I love you. Dang. This idea of covenant faithfulness and God's elective choice, his, his love for his people is inherent in what he's saying here. You think I don't love you or I'm not strong? Listen, I've always loved you and look at my strength. You've experienced it through my wrath and now you're experiencing it through my restoration and my forgiveness. And he ends by saying, you've all seen this and you'll declare it. You'll declare it. Your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, Great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. Dang. So, God, in setting up this whole book where he's about to walk into sinfulness and holiness and obedience and disobedience and covenant and covenant breaking, starts by saying, Listen, Israel, don't forget for a moment that I am God and I have power that you do not understand and I have authority and sovereignty beyond what you can imagine. But man, I love you. You're mine. I'm faithful to you. I have chosen you. If you want to read more about this idea and how it plays out and how it works into our understanding of the New Covenant Church this week, go read Romans 9. Election is a hard doctrine for us to kind of wrap our heads around. But it's inherent here that, that God is speaking of election in terms of comfort and assurance. You're my beloved. I've chosen you. I've always chosen you. <laughs> always loved you. And I'm restoring you. Which points forward to Christ, points forward to the new covenant, points forward to election, our election. So what do we do with this? How does this idea, right, of God kind of framing his discussions of holiness and sin and repentance and faithfulness and faithlessness around this idea of love and election, how does, how does that move its way forward to us in the New Testament church? How does that engage with us post-cross, post-Pentecost? I... Uh, I think there's a lot for us here. 
I think there's actually something incredibly important for us here. And, and I, I, I want to be careful with this because a lot of us, our modern sensibilities, have a really hard time with the doctrine of election. We read a passage like the one we just read, and we don't see God's kindness and, and God's, God's like grace to us, but we see God's severity to others. And we go, well, how is that fair? And that's where we want to take those sorts of passages. And I have something unfortunate for you guys, but I actually think it's really fortunate. Uh, it's not fair. That's the whole point. It's part of why the ministry of the prophets is so important. You see, God cares a ton about holiness. He cares a ton about sin. You see, we, on the other side of the cross, on the other side of Pentecost, in the most religiously free nation in Christian history, we get the ability and the option to be lazy, licentious Christians. We get the ability to become callous to the actual importance of sin in ways that none of our brothers and sisters throughout all of church history have been able to do. See, we sit on our end and we go, well, dang, why is God so gracious to us and not other people? That's not fair. He should be that gracious to everyone. No, beloved, you are missing the point. And if I'm being honest, like this is going to sound harsh, you're missing the point because your heart is numb to how seriously God takes sin. The reality is that God is holy and righteous and sin deserves wrath. It's God's universe and he made it and he gets to define it. He gets to say what is holy and what is not, what is right and what is wrong. We like to think that, that we should have some say in that. But that's just not reasonable. It's just not real. God's the creator. God's the sovereign. God's the king. It's his. It's his. And he's designed us and built us for holiness. You realize, by the way, that, that what we want to nitpick at and what we want to point towards, uh, this is unfair and that's not right, is actually operating outside of what is, what is your absolute best. That the holiness that God has defined for humanity is actually the best possible thing you can experience. That it's for your joy that God declares some things sinful and some things righteous. But in our context, where we have received grace, where our sins have been covered over, where we do not experience the wrath of God, we look at that and go, well, that doesn't seem fair. If I got in, everyone should get in. Listen, you shouldn't have gotten in. You shouldn't have. I shouldn't have gotten in. It's only by God's grace and his love and his mercy that someone as wretched as me experiences life and forgiveness and freedom. And, and, and we need to think about that. Listen, we, we live in a world that pushes back and tells us not to review ourselves with sober judgment. Listen, I'm not, I'm not telling, here, telling you here that you should be like depressed and hate yourself. Self-hatred is an evil thing that is part of the curse. But you should look at yourself with sober judgment. And you should realize that you are a self 
centered being. That, that even at our best, we find motives that are seeking our own betterment, our own pleasure, our own happiness over and above other human beings. And God in his grace and mercy has called us to life and resurrection in him. Oh my goodness. And, and when we start to, to get into difficult circumstances, by the way, Jerusalem was in a really difficult circumstance. They were experiencing all sorts of awful injustice. They had everything that they used to define their life destroyed. I know some of you in this space can actually like mentally engage with that because you've experienced the sort of life upending where every little practice and relationship and connection that you use to define yourself and engage the world just like vaporizes one day. That's where Israel is at. Oppressed, broken, hurt, and doubting. And God says, listen, I've always loved you. This exists within my covenant love for you. And this exists within my sovereign power over you. You need to trust me in that. Church, some of us need to hear that today. God's love for you and his sovereign power over your life does not mean that he withholds painful circumstances from you. In fact, quite the opposite. It means that in his love and mercy, he purposefully elects and allows for you to experience painful circumstances. And I know for some of you in the room, that is a hard pill to swallow because you've been given some real doozies. Turn with me over to Hebrews chapter 13. Chapter 12, actually, sorry. Hebrews chapter 12, starting in verse 3, says this. Consider him, Jesus, who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My sons, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which you have all participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. Beloved, let me say that again. He disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, 
All discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. Beloved, I know that some of us in this room are walking through a lot right now. A lot. I know that every single one of us bears some of the battle scars of walking through this cursed and broken world. I know that. I know some of you are in times of sweet victory right now, and some of you are in times of real darkness. But lift up your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. Your God is with you, and he loves you. And there is nothing this world can do to you. There is no evil that can be done to you. There is no sin which may ensnare you which your God is not more powerful than, which your God cannot grab a hold of and use to grow you, sanctify you, make you more like him, make you more holy. It should not surprise us that suffering can lead to holiness. You know, when James says, consider it pure joy, when you face trials of various kinds, for you know, you know the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And then he says one of the hardest phrases in the whole of the Bible, and let steadfastness have its full effect. He says, stew in it. Sit in that trial. Let it hurt you a little bit. Because God will use that. I don't know about you guys, but when I experience pain, my first reaction is not, oh, you know, I should let steadfastness have its full effect. My first reaction is, God, get me out of this. And then if I'm in a really good place spiritually, I might go, God, teach me what you want to teach so I can get out of this like right now. I'm super open to whatever you want me to learn. Like, we can learn it in the next 20 seconds and we can be out of here. But that's not how God operates. His discipline is slow and it's painful. And when we experience it, everything in our flesh will tell us look, All that stuff he said about loving you and being good and being for your good was all baloney. Look how he has left you in ruin. Right? We tell ourselves that. We hear that. We engage that. Beloved, I tell you, it is not true. Your God has always loved you. He has chosen you from before the foundations of the world. He is crazy about you. In fact, he loves you too much, too much to let you skirt through this cursed and broken world, defiled by your own sinfulness, and just let you just cruise in that. He loves you too much for that. 
See, he would rather sharpen you and clean you and mold you and transform you and sanctify you. I don't think rocks have feelings. But I think if they did, they would not appreciate being sculpted. Right? When a dude shows up with a hammer and a chisel and starts tearing chunks off the rock. I don't think the rock actually cares. But if it had the ability to care, if it had the ability to feel pain, it probably wouldn't be super into the experience, right? And yet, a rock left unto itself is pretty boring and sometimes ugly. But a rock in the hands of a master sculptor is a beautiful thing to behold. Beloved, God loves you too much. He loves you too dearly. He has invested too much in you to leave you without his discipline. It is an expression of his love. And I know for some of you right now, you hear that and there's just no way on earth you can believe it. But I'm telling you it's true. We're going to end out our time in Romans chapter 5. I'd love for you all to turn there. I'm going to read this passage for us and then we'll take a few minutes to pray and engage what God is telling us today. But beloved, we just shouldn't be surprised that God can use suffering for good. Look to the cross. What was the cross but not God himself enduring the most intense suffering for our good? Amen? Read with me in Romans 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace by which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And beloved, hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person. Though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, how much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life? More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Beloved, God has always loved you. Always. He chose you from the beginning. 
while you were still a sinner, while you were still dead, while you were still an enemy, he has always loved you. He's always loved you. And through his son, through that suffering, you have been saved from wrath. We have been saved from wrath by the grace and mercy of a holy and righteous God who was not satisfied to see his children taken into destruction by their own sin, but instead bore that himself that we might have life. There's a Christian pastor and artist named Matt Morgansky who said, Jesus loved us so much that he would have rather gone to hell than gone to heaven without us. God has always loved you. And there is no circumstance in your life that can be stronger than that love and that choice and that faithfulness that God has exhibited toward you, toward me. So guys, in the next couple of weeks, we're going to talk a lot about sin. We're going to talk a lot about holiness. We're going to talk a lot about what it looks like to actually be people who live in repentance. And if we're honest, it's going to be hard for a lot of us. It's going to be hard for me. But man, may we remember God has always loved us. Always. It never changes. It's actually the reason why he calls us to repentance for our good, for our life. I'm going to pray, and we're going to sing a little more song. We're going to give some time. There's going to be a little bit of just kind of music playing, but I want to give some time for us to respond to God in prayer. So I'm going to pray. I'm going to open it up. We're going to have two prayer counselors. Craig and Kim will be around the room. If you guys want to stand up so people can see you. They'll be around the room. If, if you just need someone out loud to pray with you for a couple of minutes, Go find one of them. Go find one of our pastors. Take a few minutes to be with you and Jesus and talk about this. Talk about, about where you actually see him in the midst of your circumstances. Talk about how you understand his faithfulness in light of your suffering. And be real. Be honest. Guys, i got to tell you something, and i got to tell you this before we go into this time. God is big enough for you to be mad at him. I need you to hear that. Suffering hurts. And God knows that. And if that, if that brings out in you something that you find distasteful, God's big enough to handle that. You can be honest with him. You can be real and confessional with him. Because he's always loved you. So take a few minutes to pray. Go find someone if you need to. If God's leading you, this is a time when you can come and pray over the church for a few minutes. And after we're done with that, I'll come up and pray for us and we'll sing a song and we'll take communion at our time together. God, you're just really, really good to us. God, if I'm honest, I get so lost in the weeds of my circumstances. I get so lost in my experience of this world day to day that 
God, I, I reject these words. I do not see your discipline as love, God. I don't. I fight against it. I buck against it like a rebellious child who does not see the good you intend for me. God, we pray that you would be our comfort in our hurt. And we also pray, Spirit, that you would push us to repentance and growth and sanctification in our hurt. And we love you. We need you for this. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Red Tree Church. Visit redtreechurch.com for more information.